You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. Appreciate you, Pastor Brent. Uh, yes, so if we haven't met, my name is Keevan Carley. I'm the youth director here, and um, I'm honored and excited to be able to uh, lead out this morning, and I just want to get right on into it. Uh, as Pastor Brent just mentioned, we've been in this series for a few weeks now entitled Lament, where we've been looking at this, this biblical demonstration of what it looks like to cry out to God as the, the middle ground, as we wait between pain and God's promises. And so Pastor Brink, for the past few weeks, has broken down the four steps of lament, teaching us that as we turn to God, as we bring our complaint, as we ask him for help, and as we choose to trust God, that it's through those four steps that we, we get brought to a place of growing in our faith, trust, and reliance on God. He said that crying is human, but lamenting is Christian, where we're not just, we're not just bringing our complaint and then saying, all right, meet you back here in the same time next week, but we're, we're crying out to God and we're asking him for help. We're telling him what's wrong in our lives. We're asking for help and we're choosing to trust him as we remember what he's done in our lives and what he's done in the lives of those around us, but also what he's done through scripture. Because it's those testimonies that encourage our hearts to persevere through the present pain as we look on and pursue God's future promises into our future. So lamenting applies to us all. But last week, Pastor Brent took some time to speak with a contextualized lens where he examined lament specifically as it relates to the empathetic majority as a means for through which lament helps white Christians to foster empathy and helping helping the majority to then identify with and share in the pain and the suffering of others while pointing towards hope. And I want to pause right there to remind us that if we're looking at this series or, or this topic and this discussion of racial reconciliation and racial injustice and we're saying, man, I just wish we'd stop, then we need to have it even more. We need to continue talking about it. But first, we also need to go to God and say, God, I'm getting tired of this discussion and I want to walk out and I want to leave the church. But God, I recognize that this is a subject that is dear to your heart. So because you are my Lord, you are my Savior, Lord, I want to be here and I want to endure. I want to persevere. So I need you to strengthen my hands. I need you to give me grace so that I can continue in this discussion. So we honor God as Lord as we say, do as you will in me. As we'll sing in our final song in a little bit, fix what's fractured deep inside of my heart, God, because I want to honor you as Lord. So I'm going to press into what you're doing in and through your church instead of running away from it. But also if you're insisting that we stop talking about cultural issues in the church, then I wanna pause right now to also inform you or remind you that scripture does exactly what we're doing. We're following scripture's example because as we see from Old Testament to New Testament, we see time and time again, God raising up leaders, disciples, apostles. Uh, through the Old Testament, we see the judges and the prophets who are speaking contextually to the sins of God's people as they try to figure out what it's like or what it means to be in the world but not of it. To live in a land of unrighteousness as God's holy chosen people. Yeah. And especially in the New Testament, we see that the early church had difficulty functioning as God's people, as those who bear the name of Christ, 
because of ethnic and cultural division. Jews did not like Gentiles. Gentiles did not like Jews. But as followers of Jesus, these apostles, they wrote their letters to these churches and explained. They, they basically said, look, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you don't let your ethnicity or your culture get in the way of loving well those brothers and sisters who are outside of that ethnicity and culture. Because doing so means that you're messing with the name of Jesus. And if you proclaim his name as Lord and Savior, that means you're representing him. And you can't poorly love others and then proclaim that Jesus would love them in the same way. You can't do that. And so the Apostle Paul and others would start their letters with the gospel, breaking it down into the basic foundation and saying, listen, God created. Satan deceived. Man fell. They rebelled against God, but God pursued right relationships, so he sent the Savior Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we deserve, but through his resurrection, Jew and Gentile alike are united to the Heavenly Father in right vertical relationship, but it also has horizontal implications, where we're united together in right relationship as well. But Jesus Christ is the unifying factor. That's what we see in Ephesians 2, verses 13 through 16, which reads, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Pastor Tony Evans in Texas, he explains this passage by basically saying that for every follower of Jesus, we're in Christ. We see that in this scripture and many others. We are in Christ. And so that becomes our primary identity up at the top through which every other secondary identity of culture, ethnicity, race, gender, or age, everything else filters as secondary identities where they're not erased because if they were erased, if Paul was effectively saying you're no longer, Jews are no longer Jews and Gentiles are no longer Gentiles, then why would he continue to refer to Jews as Jews and Gentiles as Gentiles in his future writings? So they're not erased. But what Paul is saying is that the primary identity sits at the top where the way that we relate to one another, the way that we view one another should filter through this lens of Christ, being in Christ. That's the primary identity. So it doesn't mean that I'm no longer a young black man in the South. But because our identity in Christ does not erase our identity as young or old, black or white, Hispanic or Latino, Asian or Middle Eastern, Native American or European, male or female, down the long list of dividing lines, what Paul is saying is that being in Christ, everything else should flow from there, not the other way around. So Christ removed the hostility. It shouldn't be there anymore because we should view one another in Christ, but yet we still struggle. And so here today, we're talking specifically about this, this passage and how it relates. And I, I want to continue with Pastor Tony Evans' illustration because he, he likens it to an NFL football team where if any of y'all watch football and suffer through the, the seasons as an Atlanta Falcons fan, you know that this team is comprised of 55 players on the roster. And they vary in skill, they vary in size, they vary in background, they vary in race and ethnicity. But yet you don't see the Atlanta Falcons dividing up saying the black Falcons over here, the white Falcons over here, the Asian Falcons over here, the Hispanic and Latino Falcons over here. No, they are one team bearing the same logo on their jerseys and therefore binding together and saying we are pursuing the same common goal to win. 
But contextually speaking, we break that team down where, yes, there's a head coach, but there's an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator. There's a, a quarterback coach or a wide receiver coach or a linebacker coach. And these coaches and coordinators speak contextually to the strengths and the weaknesses of each position as they, yes, they say, yes, we are coming together for the same common goal, but each position contributes or hinders the success of the team in different ways. And so we see that same thing through the New Testament, that these apostles speak to the Jewish Christians, affirming and encouraging their strengths, but confronting their weaknesses, saying, listen, you are hindering the furthering of the gospel. You're hindering the glory of God in these ways. And then to the Gentile Christians saying the same. And so last week, Pastor Brent spoke contextually about the topic of lament, which is, yes, applicable to us all, but contextually applied it to white Christians who make up the majority and said that lament fosters empathy, which thereby helps them to mourn with those who mourn, as Romans calls us to do. And today, I speak to the universal topic of lament, applicable to us all, but contextually, contextually relating it to minority Christians and how lament helps Christians redeem their hurt. That's the big idea this morning. Lament helps Christians redeem their hurt. Where for the most of our time this morning, we'll be looking at Psalm 94, which is a lament in and of itself. So we'll see those four steps, turning to God, bringing our complaint, asking for help, and choosing to trust. But we'll see how God can salve our wounds through this biblical process and bring purpose through the act of lamenting. So let's get started looking at verses 1 through 2. O Lord... God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. We see the psalmist turning to God. We don't have a clear understanding of, of who the psalmist is or what the specific context of his situation is. Why is he crying out to God? We, we don't get details of that just yet. But what we see is that he's crying out from a place of pain, trouble, and suffering. And as Pastor Brent has mentioned over the previous weeks, lamenting and, and psalms and all together are not just personal one individual song or, or sang by one individual person, but instead they are sang corporately within the community of believers. And so for us today, we can take that application and recognize that, yes, we should be individually crying out to God in our personal time with Jesus, in our prayer closets, but we should also be banding together as brothers and sisters crying out together, yes, this morning, but also in our connect groups, also in our discipleship moments with one-on-one -on -one as with someone who's discipling us or that we are discipling. We cry out together. And so I want to also take a moment to look at this word vengeance because it's generally considered a bad thing. We look at vengeance and, and are mindful of the scriptures that tell us, hey, don't be, take, don't be vengeful, don't take vengeance in your own hands, and we consider it a bad thing. But what this is actually saying is that God wills for his followers to trust him to avenge his people. He doesn't want us to take it in our own hands, but he is a God of justice who will not allow justice to go unpunished. So our Heavenly Father is saying, you can count on me. Bank on me, cry out to me, give me your complaint. Don't take it on yourself. And so we see the psalmist responding there, bringing his complaint to God, beginning in verse 3. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? That's, that's not a typo. I imagine that this psalmist is so brokenhearted that he's stuttering with his words. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? The psalmist brought his complaint. He's crying out saying, God, how long? This, this isn't something new that I'm experiencing. This isn't something new that I'm witnessing within my society. 
He's crying out saying, God, I'm tired. And it reminds me of the words of Fannie Lou Hamer, who experienced much violent mistreatment and systemic oppression, pain and suffering in her lifetime. But yet she continued to steward her life and her voice in such a way that would lay the foundation for equity for African-Americans in her time and for those who came after her. And one of her most famous quotes that gets used even today, but usually without even consideration of the original context in which she said it, she said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's what the psalmist is echoing here. He's saying, listen, Lord, how long are we going to look out into this society and see trouble, see suffering, see death, see wickedness? I'm tired of it. And in verses 4 through 7, he details exactly what the wickedness is. He says, they pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless, and they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. As we look at this, my question for us, yes, as, as Christians who hurt from time to time, but especially as minority Christians, is what injustices, pains, offenses, or sufferings do you need to bring to God? What's been ruminating in your mind? What is burdening your heart? What pains are you holding on to? Or are you brushing under the rug saying, man, it hurts so much, I don't even want to think about it. And I want to challenge you to bring that to God because that's what the psalmist did. It's not just rude comments and insults that he's bringing to God, but he's acknowledging that his people were witnessing murder of their loved ones right before their eyes. I join my fellow people of color as we see the blatant disrespect of the bodies that look like us, as evidenced by the rude comments and insults that we hear, as well as the beating, abusing, and murder of bodies that look like us. When we look out at the history of our communities, we see that it's nothing new. Well, we can also cry, Lord, how long? Lord, I'm tired of being sick and tired. As we cycle through the anniversary of the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and others, it should bring sorrow and pain to us all as Christians. But my black and brown brothers and sisters work through this on personal levels as we share in the history of our community of people who look like us. The painful losses of life for eight people in Atlanta just this week whom were Asian women, which means, yes, the pain of loss should hit us all again as Christians who are empathizing, and we should acknowledge, man, a loss of life stinks and it hurts, and therefore I'm mourning with you. But it's going to hit those within the Asian community a lot differently from us because they are part of that community especially considering that they also have, an, have to navigate the rest of the rude and inappropriate comments and, and insults and labels that they have gotten through this pandemic. For the follower of Jesus, there's no room to debate whether or not this was a hate crime when we see a community hurting and mourning, especially when some of those brothers and sisters are right here in this room. My Hispanic and Latino brothers and sisters also must figure out how to deal with their sufferings as we can all feel like outcasts and even be mistreated by, major, by majority culture. But let's remember that historically, God's hand was on the people who have been marked as smaller or weaker. We see that with David as he defeated Goliath, but also as he was chosen as king. We see that in the tribe of Judah. We see that in Bethlehem, in Nazareth, and the list goes on. So the list of cultures continues, and even though the details of the suffering may be different in all this and more, we as hurting minority Christians have to give our complaints to God. We have to turn to him because as humans, we recognize that this is not how the world is supposed to be. It doesn't take a believer to acknowledge that. 
Even the non-believers are created in the image of God, which means there is material and immaterial, which basically supports that God's hand is in every single human being where we can look out. And even for those who don't believe in God, they say, man, wickedness and evil shouldn't exist here. We look for justice. We desire it. We thirst for it because this is not how life is supposed to be. And for the Christian, we should acknowledge that even more because we should understand that grace, mercy, and justice all meet at the cross. We talk about grace and mercy a lot, but we don't talk about justice a lot at the cross. We say, yes, grace, it, it, it leads to the free gift of salvation as Christ died for us. And God's mercy is lavished out on us because we recognize that we deserved that death on the cross, but we are forgiven. But justice marries the two together because God didn't just say, you know what, I won't punish anybody. I'll let everyone off Scott clean. No. God poured out his cup of wrath on Jesus. Jesus drank that cup. And even he didn't want to at a certain point where he cried out, Lord, take this cup from me. But instead he said, I will nonetheless submit to your will and not mine, God. So I'll drink of this cup because your justice has to move forth. And even with all of that, we're still prone as believers to try to take vengeance in our own hands, which is why we have to bring our complaint to him. Because God calls us to otherwise. If it weren't so, then Paul wouldn't have written in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, earlier we established that lament helps Christians to redeem their pain. But now I want us to see that if we don't bring our complaint, we withhold God's comfort. When we hold on to our complaint, when we try to deal with it ourselves, we're dealing with the pain and the suffering. It's like having fire in our hands trying to, to put it out. But this is why we've been saying since last year that social justice without the cross and without Christ is no justice at all. Cultural answers only go so far, but only God can change hearts. So the cross of Christ and the gospel helps us to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God as we trust him to do what we can't. So in the words of Mark Rogop in his book, Weep With Me, which we have at the Resource Center, and I'd encourage us all to grab it so we can take a step deeper into this lament process. Mark Rogop says, turning to God in prayer and talking to him about injustice positions us to put away personal revenge. And for me, I recognize how that's true in my life. Well, yes, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a youth pastor, but I'm human I am human, which means that I have my own pains and frustrations and hurts and hurtful experiences that I have to sift through and process and deal with. And I recognize that that leads me to a place of frustration and rage and potentially bitterness. And I can't always see it. So that led me to reaching out to people around me, starting with my wife and Pastor Brent, who disciples me, and, and other people on staff and said, hey, listen, I need you to keep an eye on me, keep an ear to what I say, because if, if you can discern and, and hear aggression and rage in my voice or see it on my face or in my actions, I need you to call it out because my pain and my suffering and my frustrations can serve as blind spots that keep me from seeing it. So I need you to call that out, out for me so that when people make reckless and despicable comments on social media or worse, in our face, we are called to represent Jesus well, and I acknowledge that, which led me to also call on Pastor Adrian, who, if you don't know, he's the, the lead pastor of our sister church in Tallahassee, Florida, at Engaged Church, where he is in a lot of diverse spaces. If you follow him on social media, you see him talking about it, where, yes, he has his church, but he also has business, businesses, and so he walks into to spaces where he gets odd stares. 
He gets inappropriate and rude questions and comments and labels, but he continues to push on. And so I called him up basically saying, hey, listen, you've been doing this longer than me, so I need you to put me on game, but I need to also acknowledge that right now I, I feel my pain and my frustration. I feel the burden of this, and I'm not at this place yet, but I don't want to get to a place where I hate white people. I don't want to get there. So how do I keep from getting there? And Pastor Adrian, or I call him Uncle Adrian, he gave me two tips, two pieces of advice. He said, one, you got to recognize what you're called to. None of us are called to change people's minds. We're not. We are called to plant seeds and water them. And it's God who brings the increase. So you have to do what God has called you to do. But secondly, you've got to lament. You've got to cry out to Jesus in whatever way you do best, whatever way you know how, if that's journaling, if that's writing out prayers, if that's sitting in silence and just, just being in the midst of God's presence. Whatever it is, you cry out to Jesus. In the words of Mark Rogop, lament can help to prevent the poisonous mist of bitterness from infecting your life. Lament validates a painful experience without making it your identity. This is crucial. Lament validates a painful experience without making it your identity. As minority Christians, we must bring our complaint to God, but we can't leave it there. We have to trust him to handle the fury and flurry of emotions and, and trusting him to bring justice, because if we're not, then we avail our hearts to bitterness and seeking revenge in and of ourselves. But I remind you that as followers of Jesus, yes, we're minority Christians, but we're Christians first. And Christ is our primary identity so we can't just lash out from our secondary identities we, when, when we are offended, when we are hurt, when we are abused. Because our primary identity is Christ and he can help us to resolve these emotions and this suffering and this struggle. But he can also help us to move forward. So let's see how the psalmist continues in his lament in verses 8 through 11. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when, when, you be when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. As the verses continue, the psalmist's lament, it actually changes direction a little bit. First, he was crying out to God, saying, how long? God, this is the suffering. This is the complaint that I'm bringing to you. But now he shifted course a little bit, and he's actually addressing the wicked. He's calling them out where his, his lament has become a, pro, uh, a protest. He's protesting. His lament becomes a protest and a prophetic witness, which is basically saying that his lament is standing in truth, saying this is not right. This isn't how our world should be. This isn't how society should be. And God, I'm declaring that while also proclaiming that you will make it right in the future into eternity. So he's calling on the foolish and the wicked to repent and to turn to God. And he's declaring it in these great illustrative ways. He's saying the sovereign God who created your ears, he hears what you're saying. And that should frighten you a bit. That should spark something inside of you that says, man, this ain't right. I should stop. He's saying the sovereign God who gave you your eyes, he sees what you're doing. The sovereign God who disciplines the nations will also rebuke you wicked people as personal individuals. So not only is this, this psalmist shifting his direction in a way that, that gets away from worshiping, or not worshiping God, but, but crying out to God. It is a form of worship. But he's crying out to God, and now he's also appealing to the wicked. But now he's also encouraging his own heart because lament drops an emotional anchor in the character of God. 
As we bring our complaint to God, I said earlier that we can't just leave it there. We have to, in turn, also remind our hearts of what is true. We have to remind ourselves of the sovereign God who created the world and everything in it, but is also personally attentive to his people. But sometimes it's difficult to remember that. Sometimes it's difficult to remember God's sovereign control when we look out into a broken world and feel like wickedness is not only succeeding, but it's growing and blooming. And so one of my favorite passages to lean on is Isaiah 66, verse 1, which reads, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. How amazing is that? The entire world that we live in is God's footstool. That shows how grand he is, but he's also personal, as we see in Isaiah 53, verse 3, which tells us that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, was despised and rejected by men like we as minority Christians can feel quite often. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Scripture tells us God knows the number of hairs on our head. And as we recognize God's sovereignty, but yet his, his personal relationship that he pursues with his people, it should lead us to a place where we're trusting him. We're trusting him, not just because our lament is a protest, not just because lament drops an emotional anchor in the character of God, and not just because he gives us comfort as we bring our complaint, but we should trust him because God is the only reason that the discouraged minority can dare to hope again. And I would argue to say that he is enough. He's more than enough. That we can look throughout scripture time and time again and see that he has done these miraculous moves where we can't even fathom it fully ourselves, but he parts seas for Israel to escape from the slavery within Egypt. We see that he has provided manna within the desert that he has, as he has brought them to the places that he promised. And therefore, we can trust him that as he has promised that there will come a day where there will be no more tears that there will be no more pain and suffering, that we're not there yet, but he's going to get us there. We see in Psalm 94, verses 16 through 23, the psalmist closing his lament. He says, who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, that's systemic oppression for you if you're confused about that. They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. We see the psalmist reflecting on a moment in time where he felt alone. He, it even says that his, his, those around him, within his own community, he felt like there was no one with him standing against this injustice and this wickedness. And I love how the Africa Bible commentary speaks to it. Although the psalmist knows that a righteous judgment is coming in the future, he still sits with his problems in the present. He looks around for people who are prepared to stand by him in his troubles, asking who will take a stand for me against evildoers, and no one volunteers to help. The Lord is his only helper. Without the Lord's help in the past, the psalmist would have died. There were times when he thought he could no longer keep his footing, but was slipping into great danger. But God's steadfast love rescued him. When he was overwhelmed with anxiety, God consoled him and gave him inner peace. 
Yet the psalmist's anxiety diminishes each time he remembers that he is not alone, that the Lord is his fortress, his rock, his refuge, a place where he can rest and be sure of protection. So for us as Christians, we shouldn't worry when we see the temporary successes of the wicked. We should turn to the one whose love and support will comfort us and sustain us. We can rest in him and leave him to deal with those who knowingly and unknowingly oppress us seemingly without consequence. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust so that you can persevere in racial reconciliation. So I want to remind us again, yes, I'm human. No one who stands on this stage, I know Pastor Brent would echo this and echoes this quite often, that he's human, we're human, and not, we're, that we're not immune to pain and suffering and rage. And so as I have my own frustrations and pains from personal experiences where I've gotten called inappropriate names or, or jokingly asked horrible questions like, man, you actually know your dad? Things like, man, you're, you're not like the others. Or, 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 or this one, you speak well for a black guy. Well, all of these clearly communicate what their thoughts are about people who look like me. And I've experienced this through middle school, through high school, into my adult life. And if I'm honest, I've experienced it so many times that the wounds eventually become scar tissue and they scab over until they're callous. And I'm trying to just brush things off and say, you know what, I, I don't want to act out in rage I don't want to, to give them a reason to continue in their stereotypes. I don't want to act in my frustration in a way that will not bring honor to my God. So I just ignore it and let it fall off of my shoulders. But then it actually stays because it takes me to a place of hopelessness. But hear me as I challenge us all as minority Christians who are hurting and suffering to lament under the truth that God cares for our emotions that we shouldn't have to sweep pain and frustration under a rug because of someone else's insensitivities. That in my own life, I can now see how this habit of ignoring the pain was disguised under the banner of having thick skin. And I echo what Pastor Brent mentioned in week one about his own emotions, that what I thought was right was actually wrong. Because again, it left me hopeless. That I looked out in the world and even at the church and said, man, people are just gonna be how people are. And that sucks. But what we see is hope in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is Paul's benediction or his blessing to the Thessalonian church as he wraps up his letter where he's specifically making a major statement that pertains to the church's holiness and sanctification where he's saying, yes, you have responsibility. You have a part to play in God's bringing you towards Christ's likeness. You submit, you study scripture, you pray, you act as a disciple of Jesus Christ, but it's God who brings the increase when the water, seeds are watered or planted. God is doing the work. We can cling to this today as minority Christians as we lament and trust God to work in the hearts of majority Christians when their inappropriate comments, questions, labels, or silence or insults makes us feel alone, abandoned, or like they simply just don't get it. We can stand on the truth that God sanctifies his church, that our hope rests in the sovereign God who can handle our pain and our frustrations, the same God who can and will bring justice, and the same God who can and will transform hearts by his grace and mercy because we can attest to how he's done that in our own lives. 
that he's changing and transforming our hearts, bringing us towards Christ's likeness, and he's going to continue doing it within his church. So even though we can look through history and see how the church has compromised and been complicit and been silent in major and minor ways that have allowed racism, bigotry, and prejudice to not only exist, but to grow and blossom into what it is today, even though we can be frustrated by Christians in the majority who use smoke screens that distract away from the true topics that we should be talking about, and even though it's exhausting to feel like we're not welcome in some spaces, that we should actually feel the most embraced Our hope is in the God who declared that he will continue the good work that he began in those that are his. And some may claim to be his, but actually aren't. But God is the sovereign one who's working behind those scenes. God is the one that's bringing us all into Christ's likeness, even in a world that seems bleak and grim. We have hope in the God who has heaven as his throne and the earth as his footstool. We have hope in the God who is faithful time and time again from Old Testament to New Testament. We have faith and hope in the God who's worked in our lives, is continuing to work in our lives, continuing to prove himself trustworthy and able to handle our complaints and will bring justice and this time into eternity, and we can trust him with our hearts. We can trust him with our hearts. Like Caleb said this past week in youth, we are all believers, or as believers, we are all walking miracles, and therefore we should see one another as such. But when we recognize that as minority Christians, we are not being treated as such. We still have a God who is sovereignly working, who is sovereignly able to hold our complaint, hold our rage as we cry out to him in whatever way we know best. So I want to end with prayer in three different ways. One, I want to pray for those who don't know this Jesus, who don't know this God. You've heard of him, but you're here today or you're watching online and you're saying, man, you know what, I, I do. I want to I cast my complaint on this God because you're saying that he's big enough to handle it. But I don't know him as my God. I don't know his son as my savior and my Lord. Well, I want to welcome and invite you to cry out to him and just simply say, God, I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that there's sin in my own life and there's nothing that I can really do about it. But God, I'm in need of a savior and that savior's name is Jesus. So I'm crying out saying, will you save me? And if you are crying out, confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, then you are trusting God and being brought into his family where now you have right relationship with him vertically and you get to continue on with us walking out in horizontal implications even though we're still trying to figure out what that looks like. But secondly, I want to pray a prayer from Pastor John Awuchekwa who worded it this way, Father, we're coming to you only because we know that we should. Just let that sit. Sometimes we go to God only because we should. We don't feel like it. And that's our honest emotion that we bring to him. But he's trustworthy where we can still come to him in that way. So I'll say it again. Father, we're coming to you only because we know that we should. Honestly, praying about these issues again feels like a chore. If we've run out of the energy it takes to even believe things can change, how can you expect us to keep working for it? How long will we be forced to only hear of your goodness while we see the world's badness, particularly as these walls of racial pride, socioeconomic injustice, and ethnic divisions not only continue to stand, but are strengthened? 
How long, God, will these reasons to despair surround us? How long, God, will you require us to be people of hope without giving us a foretaste of the unity that you've promised? How long, God, will the ignorant and apathetic hold the most influence in directing the affairs of your people? O God, the creator of words who created with words, how long will you allow misunderstandings to be the norm among your people? Why do you require your weary people to involve themselves in justice work? That isn't working. Father, give us reasons to hope again. Evict our most well-founded suspicions and replace them with undying trust of our brothers and sisters because of your hand working in them and through them. Give us eyes to see the potential that lies in the mustard seeds of empathy and attempts at understanding. Make us the people of hope that truly reflect our belief in the resurrection. Remind us that with you there are no wasted efforts. Our Lord, we know that you don't change, that your past faithfulness is the best indicator of your future work. So would you revive your work in our days. Would you come with power and renew our spirits to keep moving forward in this work of seeing your church unified? You see, lament leads to hope and trust in a faithful God and a God who is worthy of our worship together. And so as the band comes back up, as before we transition into this final song, I want to pray once, one last time for us because as minority Christians, we have things. Again, I hope that question lingered in your mind. What injustices, what sufferings, what pains, what frustrations do you need to give to your God? To our God, what do you need to cry out to him about? What complaint do you need to bring? And I wanna pray for us now, but I also wanna pray for the empathetic majority. As Pastor Brent referenced last week about how lament fosters empathy. It helps and allows the majority to mourn with those who mourn to weep with those who weep, as Scripture calls us to. And so I want to pray for us to even be able to do that. But if we're failing to do that because we don't even acknowledge or we don't recognize what's going on or we have sin to confess, then let us do that now. So join me. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.